and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast, iBuzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts, and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz. Welcome to another podcast, iBuzz, from Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform. I'm really delighted today to have with us ecologist and writer, and I would also say poet, Carl Safina. Welcome, Carl. Well, it's wonderful to have an excuse to talk to you again, Sabrina. Thank you. So of course, a lot of people already know you from lots of different books that you have written for adults as well as for young readers. Um, you know, about the oceans, about animals, tracking animals and learning about animals, but also recently your last books have very much been about, you know, what do animals feel? What do animals think? And of course, your latest book, Becoming Wild, is also all about cultures and beauty. And, you know, perhaps for those of you who might not know your books yet or your work in the Carl Safina Center, could you tell us about yourself and the Safina Center, of course, including like the fellows and all the creative affiliate that you're working with? Yeah, sure. Uh well, I, I am an ecologist. That means that I have studied uh, nature and relationships among living things. Uh, I'm a person who just really loves the living world. And uh, what we do at my not-for-profit group, which is called the Safina Center, is that we try to advance the case for life on Earth, uh, try to stand for life on Earth by fusing together a scientific understanding, an emotional connection, and a moral call to action. And how do we do those things? Well, we create an original blend of science and art and literature in the form of books and articles, scientific research, photography, films, sound art, uh, spoken words, so basically we're creative people who are science oriented and science minded and who are trying to share our love and our desire to protect the rest of life on earth. Uh, we have myself, of course, and then two fellowship programs, one for um, slightly more senior people or mid-career type people and one for uh, very young people who are just starting out in their careers. So bas basically for people um, in their 20s, we have one fellowship program, and for uh, other people, older people, we have another. And um, those are the people who do most of the work that comes out of our center. Uh, we, we're just a, a kind of a loosely affiliated group. We don't, I don't tell them what to do. I, I'm not their boss. We just help support their work and um, we, we find a common cause together in doing this work. And then we also have creative affiliates, which is sort, sort of like an honorary board of directors uh, kind of thing. And these are just very, very noteworthy, notable people who have been creative in their fields. Some are actors, some are musicians, some are writers, for instance. And um, we, we just get together to talk about things, usually uh, on the computer, and uh, ask, ask them for a little bit of advice. And we all just try to help publicize each other's work 
So it's just, um, it's just a really, really nice group of creative people doing the best that we can to try to share our love of the natural world. Yes, that sounds wonderful. It's really inspiring to, to visit the center's website and to see all the different people and the different things that they do. And like you say, there's so many ways of expressing ourselves, uh, you know, based in science or on scientific findings, but also all the other ways of expressing through art and music. So it's really, really wonderful. And, you know, the, the Safina Center, and you already mentioned it just briefly, you say, you're, you know, making a case for life on earth. Can you dive a little deeper for us in what, you know, in what ways, you know, do you do that and why is it important? Why did you choose that particular slogan? Yeah, well, because, you know, we, we love and we study the natural world and relationships among living things and how, how humans are changing the world and what, what the natural world means for people and for the quality of human life as well. But of course, we are all driven to be conservationists because there are enormous problems. We have an extinction crisis. We have an expanding human population with an expanding footprint. We, we have the, uh, the spreading of um, lands that are used for agriculture, which of course entails on the other side, the shrinking of lands that are used by every other thing that lives on earth. And we have water pollution, plastics in the ocean, all these tremendous problems. So when I say advance the case for life on earth, try to help people understand what is at stake, what is happening, how we could do a lot better, how we could make a much better deal with the rest of the living world. Yes, and you know, this podcast is, you know, really the people listening to it are people who are working in zoos and aquariums and wildlife centers and rescue centers. And of course, many of these facilities are really trying to either, of course, you know, take care of the animals that are living there or that are being rescued um, or, you know, reintroduction programs and releases. But also, of course, there's a lot of research and education projects happening with regards to, you know, plastic in the oceans and, and all the other aspects that you just mentioned. So I think, right. you know, it's, yeah, it's just such an important part in, and again, also another inspiration of in what ways can we engage with the people that are, you know, engaged with these facilities through different types of, um, you know, art and ways of communicating, right? Yeah, I think that's the key thing is ways of communicating because there is plenty of information out there. Uh, you know, we, we do gather our own information and, and we do bear witness, but we also rely very heavily on all the things that we read and all the information that's out there. But information is not really what um, makes people care, usually. It's, it's their values that make them care. And most people really don't look for information. They, they look for stories. It's stories are what makes information stick. And what we do at the Safina Center is a lot of story making and storytelling so that hopefully this, this information will acquire an emotional power that will make people remember it and make people feel moved by it, moved toward wanting to protect and, and celebrate and enjoy all the other things that live on earth. Yes, and, and I don't have the quote in front of me now, but you, have on the Safina Center something about, you know, not, it's not the facts, because the facts are not, uh, we have lots of facts, right, like you say, and yeah. lots of information, but it's the heart. Um, right. We're going to probably come back to that later also, because I think, you know, the way that you write and communicate is very poetic. It's very, like you say, store, it's very, you know, wanting you to listen and learn more. And I think that's probably also why so many people love your books, right? Because you're uh -huh, really you. training, you know, train, creating these connections between, yeah, yes. the natural world, but also to other beings. Uh, even some of them are very, very different um, from ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think there are there are sort of two messages, you know, because they are in a sense very different from ourselves, but they also are in another sense that is real and is true also. They're very, very much like us. We are, we are really all one family of life here yes. on earth. And I sometimes tell people that, you know, you would think that a human being walking on two legs on land and a whale swimming through the ocean with no legs um, are very, very different kinds of things. But not only are we all mammals, not only do they have the same organs that we have and the same nervous system that we have, uh, they have the same brain chemicals, they have the same hormones, the same exact things that create mood and motivation in us are in them. And to show you how closely related we are, the exact same bones that are in our hands are in the front flippers of a whale. It's, it's, they're flippers because the skin covers them all. It's like the hand is wearing a mitten, but they are the exact same bones. And that's really how closely related we are and how recently we have split. Even though the split happened millions of years ago, in the, in, in the clock of life on Earth, that's a very short period of time. Our clock is just a human lifetime clock. We, we measure everything by the span of a human lifetime, which is really a very, very brief thing. But in, in the span of time in which the world actually works, we and the whales were the exact same thing a short while ago, and now we're a little bit different. And that, that's, that's really uh, the reality of it. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And, and I actually, you know, worked with marine mammals and studied marine mammals for many years. So I'm so delighted you're bringing up uh, this example, because it's one of those, you know, amazing things when you're connecting with people and talking in education programs about, uh, you know, skeletons and so on, that people are amazed right, to see those, uh, uh, the hand in the flipper. Um, yes, and, and I think, you know, this, this part about how we are similar, um, how we are different, and also how, you know, other beings have different sensory capabilities, perhaps, than we do, and, you know, what emotions come with those sensory capabilities, right, all kind of the musings of trying to understand what the others might be experiencing. And, and that time is such a relative thing as well, because of like, for example, the research of, you know, how animals like snails perceive time so differently than we do, obviously, just because of, you know, with the speed that they move, and gaining such a deeper appreciation of that. And that is certainly something that, of course, animal care professionals try and do all the time, right, is to kind of try and understand what the other beings, in what ways are we, you know, similar, and in what ways are we different, and how should we acknowledge that, and try yes. and understand it, yes, right, yeah. right, so interesting. In, in some, sometimes I try to explain it by saying we, we are all the same, and of course, this is very true for people, and we have, we have so much human pain in the world right now, but, but I, I try to say, we are, we are all the same, we're just the same in different ways. And that's, that's certainly true of human beings, but that's also true really of all of life on earth. Yes, yeah, beautiful, we're all the same, yeah. In, so you already talked about science and about, you know, trying to understand other beings and how, and you know, you of course have done a lot of research in your various books. And in, you know, the Beyond Words and in Becoming Wild, you know, the last books, two books that you wrote, what were some of the most like precious findings in the research that you did for those books? When, because of course there is this, or, or realizations, there's this beautiful sentence in Becoming Wild where you talk about the realization of beauty, right? That it makes your hair stand up. But what are some of the aspects of writing these books that really touched you? Oh, well, how many days do we have to have this conversation? <laughs> just, yeah. well, <laughs> um, just some, some, some that kind of pop at you being, right now. 
being in those wild places, being with those wild creatures, the elephants, the wolves, the orca whales, the chimpanzees, the sperm whales, the macaw parrots, be, being in those places where they live is breathtaking. Being among those creatures is breathtaking. And being with the people who have studied them, in, in several cases, people who studied them for 40 years, uh, these are some of the most wonderful people in the world. I, I love being in field camps. I love being with people like that who are so curious and so dedicated. Um, they and they all just seem to have great personalities too. So it's it's great to be with people like that. But as far as the creatures themselves, I I think that both the the extent to which they are aware of their world and they know who they are by who they are with, that they have a sense of their own life. Um, they, they have an identity that is based just like ours is, based on who we are with. We, we are individuals relative to other individuals. And the same is true for many other animals. And I think for the book Beyond Words, the most surprising thing to me that came out of that book, which I was not researching in the course of the book, was that when I was writing about the intelligence of other animals, um, the part that I was not looking at was about the intelligence of human beings. But what, what sort of came bubbling up was the, the tremendous limitations to the intelligence of human beings. We, we like to think that we are not only the best, but that we are a perfected form of life. And we have a long way to go, a long way to go as far as our empathy and our compassion. Not, and I'm not just talking about our compassion to other types of creatures. I'm talking about our compassion to other human beings as well. As you can see from all the things that are going on, we, we are far, far, far from perfect. And, and we're far from perfectly intelligent because we can't seem to figure our way through the problems that we have over and over again, decade after century, uh, after millennia in many of these cases, these old hatreds that we nurse that are based on really no reality uh, and we keep passing them along generation to generation. Now, passing things along is culture. Passing, passing what you learn, not what's genetic, but passing what you learn along to the next generation, that is culture. And my book, Becoming Wild, my new book is about culture. The most surprising thing in that book for me is to realize that with humans and with other animals that have culture, now not, not all animals have culture, but with, with any animal that does have culture, culture makes individuals come together and form groups. It's very easy to see that with humans, we form religious groups, sports groups, national groups, groups based on language. Language is purely cultural. And the corollary, the other thing that happens, the, the flip side of individuals forming groups is that groups then avoid each other or become hostile to one another. Now, on, on its face, I think that that's a kind of amazing thing to realize, the profoundness of the implications of what it means for groups to form and then groups within the same species to avoid or actually act hostily toward one another. And if you think about the implications of that biologically, it, it means that within a species, once you have culture, the stage is set for groups to specialize, which they do specialize in different ways of foraging, uh, different kinds of foods, different migration routes, different things like that, that they, that different groups specialize on. And then 
uh, evolution can act differently on these different groups and diversify the biological world based on what started out as cultural differences. And that was um, a really amazing realization for me in, in the course of writing the book, Becoming Wild. It's very, very interesting. I think also because, you know, in, in ways when we're looking at culture in other animals like uh, chimpanzees or uh, killer whales in the way that they forage or but also in the way that they set territories and you know defend them um, there's just so many things that are are really interesting and important to understand there and how you know it also shapes us being in this world yes it, it shapes us being in this world that's a great way to put it and it helps us to start to understand who are we here with in this world? Something that I think many uh, original traditional tribal hunter gathering cultures understood better than we understand nowadays in, in our modern technological cultures where we are, um, we're really very separated from the rest of life on earth. And we have estranged ourselves from, from life, from the living world on earth. Um, the, you know, people who were hunter gatherers knew who they were with in the world. And uh, they were in many cases and had to be excellent observers. Um, but most people are just completely unfamiliar with the rest of uh, the rest of the animals that are here with us. Yes, yes. I remember when I was working in the Marine Park in the Netherlands and we would have this whole education center about harbor porpoises in the North Sea uh, and in the, you know, around the islands and people had no idea uh, that you know everybody thought they had to go very very far away and, and of course we also have other cetaceans and whales uh, but people yeah you know they they often and also we are often exposed to beautiful documentaries of animals far away from us uh, but not realizing how many animals live you know with us and and close to us uh, yes, urban it's wild a, lies, right? Uh, right, exactly. And you know, I, I this has happened to me more than more than one occasion. I'll have a friend say to me something like, uh, I, "I really want my children to love nature, and we're trying to figure out where should we take them." And you, you've been to a lot of places, so we were thinking, maybe we'll go to Kenya, or or maybe we'll go to Botswana. And I say to them hang a bird feeder outside your kitchen window. Why don't you start with that? You'll be surprised. Yes. Yes. And we, you know, in our, we live about, um, we live about 60 kilometers east of Manhattan, New York, in, the, in a place that's kind of suburban, you know, actually it's very suburban, um, but we have a surprising amount of wildlife around us. We, we do have a couple of bird feeders. They're very, very active all day long. We have some beautiful, wonderful birds that are really enliven our backyard. We have deer, we have raccoons and opossums that come through. Um, very recently, within the last couple of years, and actually this spring is the first time I've heard this, we have wild turkeys in our neighborhood. Uh, I've, I've seen them a couple of times in the last couple of years, but this is the first time where they seem to be settled in around us and I, I'm hearing them calling. You know, they have this incredible gobbling call and I'm, I'm hearing that in the very early mornings. And then the other thing we have going on in our yard that has been really wonderful this year is uh, we have a hand-raised orphan screech owl who we um, we released last September. She decided to make our backyard her home territory. She attracted a mate. And right now she is the mother of three chicks. Uh, she and the chicks are in a nest box that's attached to the side of my writing studio. 
which um, is actually the outer wall of the room I'm in right now. They're only about um, two meters away from me uh, as I'm talking to you. In fact, I can poke my head out the window and look to my left, <laughs> see her poking her head out the hole of the nest box, just, just like a woman sitting in her apartment looking out at the street. It's really fantastic to have that going on. We've had a, a lot of, not only fun watching them, um, but, but it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity to watch the courtship develop over the course of the months from February until now, how, how the courtship has changed. Actually very, very much like human dating in a way, because at first they were very tentative with each other. And then there was a lot more excitement, a, a lot of courtship feeding, you know, they were going out to dinner a lot, and then there was a lot of sex for a while, and then they settled down to more of a domestic existence. That's a, uh, and now they're very, very busy parents. They're working very, very hard to raise these three kids of theirs. So it's it's been fantastic to watch that, and uh, and then the and of course the last thing we have going on all the time is we have our three dogs. And we got, uh, we have some chickens. We got six new chickens this year, uh, little tiny chicks that are now getting pretty big. So um, there's a, a lot of life in this in this little backyard, and it's it's been delightful. That sounds wonderful. It's like you wish it was not a podcast, but actually, you know, you could turn the webcam around and show us, you know, her poking her head out, and it's. But you know, it's it's such a beautiful all the story, so you can just see it even though we can't see it. So thank you for yes, that. Yes, and actually <laughs> on, my, on my Instagram account, there are a number of photographs of her and, um, I, and I will be putting up some more also. So on my Instagram account, on my Facebook page, there uh, are some postings of the photos of the owls among many other things. Excellent, we will make sure to link to all your social media, uh, appropriate to social media channels like Instagram and Facebook, and of course the, the Safina Center, so that people can follow all your stories also in pictures. So that's wonderful. Right. Yes. Right. In, um, you know, I was in, in Iceland working as a wildlife guide when many years ago when, I, when your book Beyond Words came out. And, um, and I still remember listening, I actually got the audiobook, I still remember listening to the book. Um, several times and of course you know really enjoying it but what for me when I saw the title of that book you know you know how words you know make you think about all kinds of different things so you know beyond words you know explores what animals think and feel and you know including the aspects of language and so I was thinking about this title right when I was kind of interpreting it when I saw the the title and the and the picture but, you know, to me, what I was interpreting was things like, you know, beyond words and the language as we know language, right? That was one of the things that came to me. And also that there, there sometimes there are no words for things that we either don't know yet or don't understand or what that might be like uh, in our own languages. Um, or we don't need words to describe some of the things that we're feeling. Now, of course, I'm always very interested to understand what from a writer, what is it that, why you chose that particular title? Well, I think for a couple of, for a couple of reasons, because that phrase, as, as you're saying, that phrase means several things that are related to the topic. So it seemed like a good title in that way. Um, first of all, yes, most of these other animals do, well, they, they don't have human words. They are beyond our words. Some of them have their own kinds of words for their own species um, that they use to do some communicating. They, I, don't think, I don't think most of them have language in the way that we have language, but they communicate what they need to communicate and they communicate a lot of situational awareness to one another. Um, but, but, you know, it's beyond our words. The other thing is that in, uh, at least in American English, the expression beyond words means, you know, something that's really incredible, something that's indescribable. You say, well, that, that is beyond words. You know, you, you, right. you can't even describe it, right? So 
Um, right. It's both of those things. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I so I'm not a native English speaker, as you have already got it. So um, yeah. So I didn't know that beyond words. That is really yeah. It is definitely beyond words. Some of the things that you know we um, see from animals or yeah learn from animals. That is just amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, the you know the sort of the ironic thing is that it's a book, right? So yeah. it's it's, in, it's entirely words, and it's entirely words that I I worked very hard to try to choose exactly the right words in exactly the right order to make that book. But um, nonetheless, I I I think uh, I think the title stands as is, and I think it, it's a good title for that book. I still think it is. Absolutely, because the words, as I said, you know, I think. Um, you know, you, you might not necessarily um, see yourself like that. I don't know. But to me, when I read your work, it's very poetic. So even though the book is cons consists entirely out of words and it's beyond words, but uh, your stories really bring it to life uh, in a way yeah. that you actually forget that you're reading words. Well, that's, a, that's an incredibly nice compliment. And I, I, that's very kind. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons that poetry exists as a form is that it's, it's a way of using words, a few words, very, very powerfully. And it mostly is about expressing feeling. Um, and I do try to do that in, in the prose that I write. In, in fact, there's, um, there's one paragraph in the book Beyond Words that I wrote originally as a poem. And at one point while I was putting, you know, the, the chapter together, I remembered that poem that I had written and I thought that that would that would fit really well here. So I put it there and I took the line breaks out of it. So it was a paragraph. And uh, interestingly enough, a, a poet and philosopher wrote to me. Uh, she lifted that exact paragraph and, and she said, I really like this paragraph. And <laughs> I said, well. <laughs> That's probably because it used to be a poem. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Great. Wonderful. So in Becoming Wild, which I actually haven't finished reading yet, so and, and I'm not worried about spoiler alerts or anything like that. But in Becoming Wild, um, you know, the you write about culture and social lives of animals and actually animals finding meaning and whales finding meaning in life. And can you talk a little bit more about what that means and in what way do whales find meaning in life? Yeah, I think first of all, our, our normal expectation from our technological society that is so estranged from the rest of life, our, our expectation is that they, they don't really have any meaning in their lives, that they just live and do things instinctively and then they die and um, it's even easier to get that impression from farm animals who um, are you know live the way that we make them live they don't really live a, a natural life in nature being who they could be uh, it would it would kind of be like studying human beings by going to a prison and watching what the prisoners do. You wouldn't get a very good impression of what human life is like, and you cannot get a very good impression of what uh, life is like for other animals by just looking at farm animals. So um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, many of these animals understand who they are by who they are with. In other words, they have an identity that comes from having a group identity, very, very much like human beings. And they obviously, uh, so that, that creates the meaning in their lives. They, they travel with people, they, well, they travel with individuals they know. They, uh, they define and defend their territories as a group in many cases. And uh, that's the way that they find meaning in their lives. They obviously also value life. You could see how much work they put into staying alive and, uh, and how much uh, effort they put into avoiding danger. They, they are trying very hard to stay alive. 
and to remain with the individuals that um, that they value, that actually make life valuable and meaningful to them. The, these are their family members, like the sperm whales or elephants, who stay with their uh, with their families their whole lives. If if they're females, the males leave at adolescence. Or wolves that form a nuclear family, very much like a human family with a, a mother and a father, and then their children who live with them until they become adolescent and leave to try to find their own adulthood, you know, their own stake in the world as adults. The, the macaws who not only will defend their mates against a, a predator like a hawk, but they will, they will have to defend their nest together as a team against other macaws that will come and try to take their nest. And if they lose their nest, they stay together as a pair until such time as they can acquire another nest. So they, they, you know, they really know who they are in ways that are very recognizable to people, but, but, but unknown to most people because you have to look for this and it takes a while for it to become observable. Yes, and you have observed a lot of animals, a lot of different animals, and you know, you write specifically how does a whale find meaning in life? Now, perhaps do you have musings about whether, you know, the whales wonder what the meaning of life is? Well, that's I, I think that the what the meaning of life actually I wrote about this in a in a in a section in another book of mine which is called the view from lazy point I wrote that asking what is the meaning of life is the wrong question and it makes you look in the wrong places and that's one of the reasons that people have such a hard time answering this question it's the wrong question. The, the question is, where is the meaning in life? And as I, as I wrote in that book, because I was talking about listening to a bird calling in the context of, uh, of wondering about this question about meaning in life, um, one note, one, one note of a bird's call or one note of a musical instrument is not music. What makes, it, what makes music is the relationship between the notes. And the place to look for the meaning in life is in between. The meaning in life is in relationships. There's no meaning of life. There's meaning in life. And the meaning in life is in the relationships. So when, for instance, whales who travel maybe 75 uh, miles a day or, or 100 kilometers a day are with the same whales 10 or 20 years later, that's not an accident. The ocean is a very, very big place. And if you're traveling together and making the effort to listen for one another uh, and identify yourself as an individual, I am over here, where are you? I am over here, let's go together. This is not an accident and that, and that is the meaning in life for those creatures. It's the meaning in life for us as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a lot to think about there. I'll have to go and now read a View of Lazy Point because I haven't read that one. That's a very different kind of book. And yes. uh, you, might, you might find it interesting. When I finished writing that book, I thought two things. I thought, this is the book I was born to write. And uh, everything I know and everything I think about is in this book. And now I'm afraid that maybe I won't be able to ever write anything again. But uh, fortunately for me, that was several books ago. So life continues. If you're a lifelong learner, uh, there's always a lot more to say as the world changes and as your understanding changes and, uh, and hopefully you become a little wiser. Wonderful. I already look forward to it. In, in many of your books, you uh, explore this human-animal relationship and connection. So either from the individual, such as leatherback turtles and 
Amelia, the albatross, like, but you're also, you're zooming in and out, if, if I say that correctly. Yes, that's, like a, that's a good way to put it, yes. Like, between the individual and then the species and the health of the ocean and then back to, you know, individuals like Amelia, the mm -hmm. albatross. Right, right. Can you share a, a few stories with us and lessons? And, and of course, we want to know a little bit also more about Amelia because we love individual animal stories. Yes, well, Amelia is a Laysan albatross, and there's actually one Laysan albatross that has a leg band, a leg tag, uh, or a ring. Sometimes in Europe, they're called, they're called bird rings. And um, from her, because she was first ringed or tagged in the 1950s, we, we know from her that this species can live into the late late 60s as, as far as age. They live a very long time. So many of them can live uh, 40 or 50 years, many of them do. And they will have the same mate year after year after year, even though they travel many, many thousands of miles over the open ocean and um, uh, in almost, almost ceaseless wanderings, except in the breeding season where they may go for two, three, four weeks at a time and, and travel maybe 9,000 miles in one round trip and come back and feed their chick and then do that again. And both parents will be doing that. And then in the next breeding season, the same parents may find, will find each other among thousands of albatrosses on a particular island. And, um, you know, this is, a, this is a just, uh, well, I, I hesitate to say amazing because there are so many things that amaze people, but this is the way it is. And this is the way it's been with them for millions of years. We, we, if, if we were really as smart as we think we are, and we really understood things as well as we think we do, this would not amaze us because we would understand that this, <laughs> is, this is the magic of the world. But um, because we are strangers to the world, uh, almost everything we learn is amazing, and uh, and it and it should be, because it 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 is miraculous, what what is here and what lives here and how it lives and what lives are like, for these creatures. Yes, it made me giggle because I was thinking about if I would you know find a friend that I hadn't seen in a year, or, you know, we would, you know, find each other and that, you know, that wouldn't be amazing um, because we would have ways to do that, right? Uh, but because we don't understand or know that others do that too in different ways, perhaps, uh, sensory, uh, sensory system-wise, but uh, yeah. It, it's, actually it's actually rather similar way to how we would find each other for, for most of human history. We would we, well, the easy way is you go home and your mate will, will come to the same home and you will, you will appear there. But living among thousands as they do, they do the other thing that we do, which is they recognize voices. They recognize each other's specific voices. And parents recognize their chick, even as the chick is growing rapidly and looks different than the last time they saw it, they recognize the voice. In some animals, they recognize the scent. But but the thing is, you know, these are individuals. We forget, or or it's never even occurred to us, or we've thought that they're not individuals, but they very much are. Yes, absolutely. I was talking for my master's project. I was interviewing animal care professionals, and I was asking them, you know, how do they know with how the animals are faring, and you know, and some of the things they were bringing up were sounds of animals. And some of them would say, you know, I can hear, you know, from the different sounds, even if you would cover my eyes, I could, I would be able to hear, you know, from all the different animals that I care for in that same group, who is who. Uh -huh. uh, so yeah. it was, it's very fascinating, right, to, to how good we are also to get in tune with the, the animals we care for and being able to recognize them by their voices, individual voices. So, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. So you also write for young readers about uh, elephants and you know whales and what they think and feel. And what are some of the differences in storytelling be beside, of course, the technical aspects or you know the the level you go into that you know 
and, and what parts of storytelling for young readers do you think appeals to adults um, and why would that be? Oh, I, a good story is a good story. And I think that's the main thing. And I think making that emotional connection from an individual who's reading a book to an individual who you're writing about in the book, a, a character. So I think, uh, you know, I think characters and a good story, a story has, uh, a, you know, an it has an element of time. It has a character or characters and it has a place. And over that, over that time, things change, something, something happens, hopefully something interesting happens. The world is full of interesting things that are happening. Um, so I think that those elements are, are, you know, they're universal. You just have to find those universal elements, but, but there are a lot to choose from. Yes. And, and, and it's amazing how we continue to love, you know, when people read to us, right. Or even reading, uh, I love to also read, you know, children's books or young, you know, adults. And just because it's, it's just so entertaining as well. Uh, but we, we never really seem to get over wanting to hear good stories and, or being read to. So even though mm -hmm. that's some of the things that, that we only did when we were younger or when you were in school, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you actually, we actually heard a few, uh, I think one dog or a few dogs, um, you know, communicating in the background. So you have that's animals right. at home. Yeah. Yes. Uh, animals in the, at home and outside. And, um, you know, you are described as, as a scientist, but also a fisherman. Now, all the researching and connecting with animals and writing about them, you already just mentioned farm animals and, you know, how they are impaired to live the lives that they could be living. In what ways have, has it changed your views or, or actions for animals? Well, my entire career is focused on trying to find better ways of protecting mostly wild animals. Um, when I was younger and I, I was actually a working field ecologist, I also helped to protect a number of uh, seabird nesting colonies. And I, then I uh, changed quite a lot from that, although related because it was seabirds and I, and I realized from studying seabirds that we were depleting the ocean of fish. So I worked for a, a long while, um, the better part of a decade on fish manage, fisheries management reform, trying to uh, improve the laws to let the fish populations recover from overfishing to to make to prevent overfishing from happening and we had a lot of success with that in U.S. waters. Uh, waters of the United States are relatively well managed. Many of our fish populations are recovering from uh, much lower population levels from from when I was uh, uh, a young student or uh, or a young worker at that time. So that was that was very good. That was really a worthwhile period of work. And and then since then I've been trying to inspire more more caring, more more protection, more love for other animals and the wild places that they live in. And in my personal life, um, I, I don't I don't say much uh, or write much about farm animals. It's not really my topic, but I think that when you read about animals in my books, I mean, many people have told me that they've read about these animals in my books and they've decided to become vegetarian or vegan. Um, I, I, a long time ago when I was in my 20s uh, and started to understand a, a little bit about how most animals are made to live, uh, I decided that I really didn't want to have anything to do with that. So I don't buy farmed animal meat. I, I don't buy uh, milk or eggs. Um, we, have, we have chickens. They lay very nice eggs for us and they run around our, our property every day, completely unfenced, completely unenclosed. They have a nice life and they're very healthy. We enjoy their eggs. So I'm not vegan. Uh, you know, I eat eggs. I also do go fishing. And I go clamming. I went clamming this morning. Clams are animals. So um, if you eat a clam, you're not vegan. Uh, 
Um, but the thing with the fish is that the, you know, I, I, I wrote an article in the guardian about do fish feel pain and, uh, yes, fish, fish feel pain. Obviously, if you have a fish that you've hooked, they don't want to be hooked and they don't want to, uh, you know, they, they are, they are alarmed. They are, um, they are panicking. They're trying to get away. Um, that's not very pleasant, but, um, that's part of my food supply that I am responsible for getting. Um, I don't want to be divorced from my food. I don't want to get all my food from a store over a counter, paying people money for food that I don't exactly know where it came from or how I got it. Um, I always say a good meal is a meal that has a story. And since I live near the coast, there's, there is a lot of good food to be had by catching fish. The, the killing of them is, is an unfortunate part of that, but um, they get to be just, just as in truly in the natural system of the ocean, they get to be who they're supposed to be until the time that I catch and kill them. In, in a farm, the animals are never who they are supposed to be. And instead of living the life that they're supposed to live up until the moment that they're killed by a predator, let's say, they, they never live the life that they're supposed to live. They're, in fact, the, the way that the, the laws are structured for most humane slaughter of, of most farm mammals anyway, there, there really aren't the same kinds of laws about uh, birds, poultry, but uh, you know, there are laws about humane killing of farm animals, uh, but their lives are more miserable than their deaths. We make them live worse than we make them die. And I don't, I don't want to have any part of that. So um, I, I hope that was clear and not too long an answer to that question. No, absolutely. And I think it's such an important topic because we, of course here we're talking about the well-being of animals, but we also you know, have to think about the impact on the planet of like eating eating animals right or like eating well eating steak. anything i mean this is right. the thing let's yeah. let's say that you are you never eat any animal at all you know you're completely vegan um what do you eat you eat farmed vegetables what what is a farm a farm used yes. to be habitat for wild animals now um animals cannot use it anymore and that's true of vast, vast areas of, of the planet. If, if I catch a fish, I don't hurt the ability of the ocean to make more fish. But, but if you grow lettuce or broccoli, you, you, you make it impossible for any other animals to live in that area. That to me is a terrible trade-off. And, um, and then, if unless you're really scrupulous about buying all organic and the people who are selling it are honest, then um, your farm is using industrial fertilizers, pesticides, uh, creating water pollution, and using, um, using petrochemicals to, uh, you know, plow and do all the, all the things that modern industrial farming does. We have, we have industrial animal raising and we have industrial farming at these factory scales, which I think are, well, I don't think, I mean, they are very, very destructive. Um, they are much more destructive than me going and digging some clams or, or catching some fish. But the trade-off there is that yes, I do inflict some pain on those fish. And uh, unfortunately, we, we are animals on earth. If you're an animal on earth, you have to eat something. And if, if you think about what you're eating, there, there is no perfect meal that does no harm to anything. And that's, you know, that's the problem that we all have to find our own answers to. Absolutely, yes, whether it's increase of prices, of you know staple food for people in regions because now we want to eat certain products because of health reasons or belief reasons. Um, as you said, you know, food and what is the story of the food? You know, 
so and and knowing the story of where your food comes from is like you say how do we make those informed choices so thank you so much for sharing all that thank you so, so i've said it before but like you know you for me you write like a poet and you write things like you know a, about the heart from the heart and to act with the heart right this emotional mm -hmm. connection so you already mm -hmm. gave quite a few insights why this is so important to us could you share in what ways do you think can we improve the way that we talk about you know conserving the planet protecting animals caring for animals uh, other beings in this world um, through mm -hmm. you know the writing and the everything from the heart yeah well i think that for you know many people care about a bit these kinds of things but they they don't know what to do one of the questions that is uh well there's two questions that that are invariably the first question i'm asked if i if i give a talk in public and there's an audience and i, I give my talk and then it's time for questions the first question is either is either what do you eat or do you eat meat or what can i do um, one of those two things is always the first question and many people feel paralyzed. They don't know what to do. They, they see these problems as gigantic, overwhelming. Uh, often they say to me, I'm just one person. And I point out to them that everybody who has ever lived has been just one person. Some people have done a lot. Some people have not done a lot. Um, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. So I say, do something. Just figure out what thing, among all these things you care about, what thing you can do. And here are some of the things you can do. You can think about what I'll eat. Think about who I'll vote for. Think about what I will buy or what I will invest in if, you if you're wealthy. Think about what you will drive, what kind of car you will drive. Think about what groups you will join. Then you won't be just one person. You'll be a member of a larger group with a collective effort. Think about what you'll talk about. The, the most powerful people in the world don't actually do the work. They talk. They, they have ideas. They have the force of words. Talking is important. And nowadays, we have all this social media. Um, there, there's a lot out there, but everyone has the opportunity to participate in that and make their voice a little bit heard anyway, or maybe a lot heard. Think about what you'll throw away. Think about what you will do for a living, especially if you're a young person. Think about who you want to be. What kind of person do you want to be? And, and if you're a uh, uh, a young person thinking about being a parent, think about how many kids you'll have. These are all important things that everyone can do all the time. Yes. And, and it really, you know, takes me to, you know, I think this podcast has been really, really wonderful. And I have one last question uh, for you, which, you know, you just touched upon already very deeply. And it's one of the things that come back over and over again is the word hope. Like hope is a reoccurring word and a theme, right? For mm -hmm. species, our relationship to other animals. And in closing, could you give us, you know, what, what are your biggest hopes for people and animals and the planet? Perhaps like a moral call to action because you already, you know, gave us lots of insights what it is that you can do uh, as being somebody. Yeah, I think um, I, I think let's let's go a little a little deep on that question. Sometimes people ask me, "Are you an optimist or a pessimist?" And I I sometimes say that in in a way that's not a relevant question. The the, the question is, "Are you doing the right thing?" Are you, are you just doing something that you know is the right thing to do? That's more important than whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. And sometimes I say, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, 
depends on whether you're sitting in the bleachers just watching uh, or whether you're on the team playing. If you're on the team playing, you're not worried about whether you're going to win or not. You're just trying very hard to win. And that's what I think that we all should do about all of the issues that we care about, whether it has to do with nature or social justice or any of the things that we care most about. But getting directly to the question about hope, I think, I think people are kind of confused about what they mean by hope. Sometimes people mean that they just wish something and they say, oh, I hope this will happen. That's kind of a wish. But I think hope is a much more important and much more specific concept. To me, hope is the understanding that things can get better and how they could get better. So uh, I, I think that to have hope is to understand how something could get better. Otherwise, if you don't understand how it could get better, I, I don't see how you could have any hope. So hope to me is the thing that actually motivates all work. If you're working toward something, it's because you see a way that it can get better. And, th and that is, is my definition of hope. I think hope is an incredibly important concept and an incredibly strong idea because it's, it's the understanding of how something can be better. And once you understand that and have that hope, you can work toward it and become a, a powerful person or at least an empowered person. Yes. Absolutely. And, and I think this resonates so much with people who are caring for animals and who are working in conservation. And it's that, you know, direct wanting to make sure you do the best you can for the animals in your care, as well as working towards this greater goal, this greater, you know, cause in our in our life that we are you know really committed to which is the hope that by working together on all kinds of different projects in all kinds of different ways we can you know achieve and and you know have that greater community of life and and uh, yeah like you said at the very beginning working towards you know this this uh, case uh, for life on earth really Right. And let, let, me, let me give you a couple of examples. When, when I was in my mid-teens, when I was about 15, really just a kid, um, I had you know, no, no power in the world at all. Um, I, I, I loved birds of prey. I was kind of a, a, a hawk and an owl freak. And at that time, the, the pesticides that were being used were completely wiping out two of what were my favorite birds of prey, but I had never actually seen them. I only knew about them from books and from reading about them. And that was peregrine falcons and ospreys. They were completely gone from most of North America and Europe. The, the ospreys, um, which where I live on Long Island is really, really good osprey habitat. And they were just about totally gone from Long Island. You could see the big nests that they had built, but the birds were all dead. And not only was this crushing to me, but I felt hopeless. What could be done about birds that were gone because of the pesticides people were using? But there were a few people who saw how it could be better. They had the power of that kind of hope. And they didn't take this for an answer that the birds were just going to go away. And by, by the force of their actions, they did two things. They not only got the pesticides banned so that the natural environment started to clean itself up to the point where if those birds existed, they could live. And then other people started to breed peregrine falcons in captivity so that they could be released, while yet other people were taking osprey eggs from the, the places that were still okay, moving the eggs under the few remaining living 
adult birds because the problem was that the eggshells were getting thin by the pesticides and the eggshells were breaking. That was the weak link in the life chain. They were so that those birds could at least raise chicks in that region and hopefully those chicks would survive and come back and start to repopulate that region. The peregrine falcons from captivity were released. I actually, that was my first professional job working at a site to release captive bred peregrine falcon chicks, take care of them, feed them for a few weeks until they became independent. They started to recover, the ospreys started to recover. And now the area around New York City is thought to be the densest nesting population of peregrine falcons anywhere in the world. And, and I often see peregrines when I'm near the city. I sometimes see them right around where I live. We, we see a lot of them now when they migrate in the fall. And when I was young, you saw basically none, or, or maybe you would see one if you were very, very lucky. Now it's not at all uncommon to see them. And as far as ospreys, there are ospreys, there's probably six osprey nests within two kilometers of my home. So these things exist because people had the power of hope where they saw how something could get better and they worked to make that happen. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing these stories because it's exactly, you know, having the power of hope and um, I think, you know, perfect ending for this podcast. Carl, I, I really want to thank you very much for all the work that you're doing, the, not only writing fantastic books, but everything and connecting to people. And, and today for, you know, sharing your stories and about connecting with other animals in this world, the planet, learn, continuing to learn and, and also about asking questions. How do we ask questions? What are the questions we want to ask? And to act with the heart, because that really speaks to me and to have that power of hope uh, to make things better in this world. Thank you so much for coming onto this podcast today. Sabrina, I was really, really delighted to be with you. And you're, you're an excellent interviewer because your questions made this, I think, a, a nice conversation, really good. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions. Or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out PAWS, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing. Mm -hmm.